This is The Ignition Show. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of The Ignition Show, where our aim is to create meaningful conversations with switched on people about things that matter. Matter in the pursuit of your potential and igniting the flame within you to live your best and full life. It's an all too common cultural phenomenon to come to the end of the year and in spite of any or all successes in the past year, there can be a feeling of regret or a pit in the stomach that there was so much more that could have been experienced, achieved and contributed if only I was more focused, I was more productive. I didn't waste so much time. You know, if I did, only if I didn't spend so much time on my emails or in purposeless meetings or on social media or binge watching Netflix or just procrastinating. Now, personally, over the last decade, I've had so, such a stark realization that every year seems to be passing by with more speed than the previous year. Which, of course, then the logic would say that this upcoming year, 2020, will be even more of a blur than 2019. It's going to pass faster than the previous year for sure. And with that, <laughs> wisdom from Captain Obvious means I better knuckle down and start getting to work. Or maybe that's exactly the wrong thing to do. Do you ever stop to interrogate your own strategies for success and progress? What if the exact way of working you think will get you to your goals is the exact way of working that's getting in your way? This is an area of personal exploration that deserves the expertise and insights of a seasoned scientific analyst. So I'm excited to bring to you today's guest, Sahar Youssef. Sahar is someone we need to listen to. Her work and research as a cognitive neuroscientist clearly shows that there are scientific realities about how the human brain works and our current working culture by and large is not in line with this reality. As you listen to this episode, see if you can clearly identify where your day-to-day approach to work, your to-do list, your mobile phone, your, uh, your way of managing your, your tasks, where could you use a high-performing, high-productivity upgrade? You'll be glad you listened to this. After all, 2020 will fly by, and you owe it to your life to bring the science of productivity and make the most of the days in the month ahead. Enjoy the conversation. On today's show, we're speaking with Sahar Youssef. Sahar is a cognitive neuroscientist and a faculty lecturer at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. She consults with leaders and organizations to be more productive and peak performing based on principles of neuroscience and physiology. For the past seven years, she's been conducting research on cognitive enhancement, how to improve focus, memory, energy levels, motivation, and stress management. Her most popular workshops include Becoming Superhuman, the science of focus and productivity in an always-on, incredibly distracting world. And what I'm very interested to know is what every manager should know about how the brain works. Sahar, it's an honor to have you here. Welcome to the Ignition Show. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, likewise, likewise. And uh, I'd love to begin with a bit of your origin story. I understand, I've heard you say that you've been fascinated about the human brain and consciousness for as long as you can remember. How did, you, how did that come about? What are your earliest memories and what led you down a career in neuroscience of all things? Oh, uh, good, a good question, actually. It's a trip down memory lane, but I still remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I actually started off with a keen interest in studying being philosophy, specifically philosophy of mind. And the reason for that was that, you know, that fascination with specifically consciousness, but it was more the conscious experience. Uh, From what I could tell from a very early age is that there's a lot going on in the world outside, but that everything that's happening outside, we interpret through these almost rose-colored glasses that 
we can't ever take off. There's really no such thing as reality outside of us as individuals, as humans processing said reality. So it's almost like questioning objective reality. There's no such thing. My experience even of things that are completely objective, like uh, gravity, objects, you know, uh, even pure math, is still always filtered and experienced through my lens as the human being. So everything is filtered through my consciousness. There's nothing outside of that. So for, you know, as, as a curious kid, I thought to myself, well, you could study physics, you could study chemistry, you could study politics, but really all of it at the end of the day is really, when I close my eyes, it's me. It's the thing that's inside. Mm. That's really the root of it. I can't, this is the one variable that is consistent across all of these different subjects. So I'd like to start by studying that and understanding what, how we get to truth and thought and belief and feeling and what, what of that is actually objective, what of it is malleable, uh, et cetera. Wait, I started off in philosophy uh, and I remember, oh my goodness, I was probably 19 years old. I still remember this day. I was sitting in the office. I was actually a research assistant for a short time for a philosophy professor uh, of mine. And uh, which, by the way, research assisting a philosopher is not <laughs> not as exciting as uh, being a research assistant in a science lab. I kind of went in and I was, you know, like 18, 19. And I, I remember walking up, you know, and, and scheduled a meeting with him. And I was like, I would really love to, to work under you and, and to assist in what, you know, I think he kind of like smiled and was like, all right, cool. Well, I'm writing a new book. And he was, he was rather old at the time. And and pretty much I was just transcribing this book. And that was what it was like to assist a, a philosopher. Um, but I, I did that for, for months and, you know, came in sometimes, um, you know, to, to his office with ideas of my own and, you know, questions from, you know, the research that I was doing within, you know, my realm of philosophy and what I was excited to talk about. And at some point in time, he actually sat me down and said, the questions that I'm asking about consciousness, about the mind-body problem, about you know where does the mind begin and end, and how how does that relate to the brain specifically? You know, is there a consciousness or a mind separate from our physiology or chemistry, or it is actually all sort of reductionist? Is it all just the brain? And and at some point he you know he sat me down and said you're gonna you're gonna hit a brick wall pretty quickly. Uh, with the kinds of questions you're interested in. You're not gonna get the answers sitting in an armchair with a chalkboard in front of you philosophizing because the questions that you're asking are scientific. Yeah, they're not philosophical. Yes. So oddly, my, my path to neuroscience, which is a, more of a, you know, it's a harder science, so to speak, the, the, the passion and the catalyst is actually just to, to understand something philosophical and that continues to actually be mm. Uh, my passion. Uh, and I, that was, I actually changed majors um, after that conversation. I took my first class in cognitive, cognitive science. And I still, I remember my first day sitting in class and I got a chill up my spine with the first slide that came up and it was a slide of Descartes and it was on the mind body problem. So I knew we were going to study science, but we weren't going to do it outside of really understanding why we're even talking about it. So it was about the human. And I loved it. I was like, I'm done. <laughs> Sign me up. I'm very, I, I, yeah, I'm very impressed how you were drawn to that at, at such a young age. I'm, I'm curious, you know, was, uh, do you remember the kind of the earliest times where you were exposed to some of that? Because everything you're saying is, is, um, is fantastic and I, I get it, but certainly as a probably a 
17, 18, 19 year old, that would certainly have been above my head in terms of the whole principles of, of consciousness. Were you exposed to some of this early on? Were your parents involved or, or community involved in some way? What was, the, what was some of your early connection to that, is it even as a thing? Hmm. Um, actually, no, I wouldn't say, I didn't have, uh, I think it was more through maybe even just uh, personal experience. Um, most definitely, um, <laughs> growing up, I definitely had some, uh, let's say, uh, behavioral issues <laughs> in my high school days. So I did end up actually homeschooling myself and taking college courses to supplement um, my high school education so that I could, uh, you know, remedy uh, pretty much being asked to leave my high school and actually make it to college uh, on time. <laughs> so, right, right, right. Uh, I, I probably I had a I had a probably um, less straight and narrow path uh, to to college and to higher education. Um, I'm sure if you, you know, if I could go back and maybe even, you know, talk to some of the teachers that I had growing up, they would have never guessed I would have ended up studying neuroscience or studying anything for that matter. But I think that's probably what, um, what kickstarted is, is, is knowing that it's kind of um, off the beaten path educational experiences um, and just life experiences, perhaps. But yeah, nothing formal. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great, great. Well, you know, in the in the spirit of our conversation here, uh, and we were talking about this a bit before we started we recording, is is that you know we're at the start of a new year, and it's often the case where people are looking to you know have a better year, whether it's the best year ever or whatnot. But it's a it's a time of year where people are really either reflective on how to what they want to get out of the year, but also determined to make the year more more gets to get more out of the year. And a big part of that is productivity, and a big part of that is is um, optimizing how they do things even more than they have in the past. And I've heard you say that, you know, you want to help people leverage their biology, not fight their biology. So in the context of of trying to be better, be more effective at what people are doing this year, what do you mean by that? Let's start with that kind of maybe the bigger picture. We'll, we'll definitely dive into some very specific tactics that people can really embrace for this year. But let's start with some of the science behind it all. What do you mean by leverage biology, not fight their biology? Mm. Well, to me, there is just like, uh, again, kind of going back to the fundamentals of, of any scientific discipline, there are fundamental laws, uh, ways that things are, ways that things work almost even mechanically. And there is a, a there are fundamental laws, almost like the laws of gra gravity. You can't really fight gravity. It just is you can you know, challenge it, you can try to, uh, it won't make your life any easier. And in the same way, I would like to introduce a shift in, in, in the way that we view biology in the West. And that is that I'd like to introduce it as something that is a fundamental law. There are ways in which our brains and our bodies operate and ways in which our brains and our bodies are really meant to work. The ways in which they're ought uh, they're, they're best suited to work, and what I mean by not not fighting biology is to first educate ourselves into how our brains and bodies work best, and once you know that, to at least to structure your life in such a way that you're not constantly pushing up against it. And ways in which I see uh, you know friends, family, um, clients of mine doing this many times is. For one, uh, for example, being constantly connected to our devices. Humans are not wired 
for constant connectivity, constant communication. We're wired for intense focus and intense work. Think like a sprint, you know, of some sort, like you're running and then you need to rest. We're, we're kind of made for on and off switches. But the way that I see most people working now, especially at work, you see the way teams operate is that everyone is kind of connected all the time and kind of working all the time with a ridiculous number of hours. Yes. But there's not this intense work, really intentional, intense work where you're super focused, you're in flow, you're in the zone and you're just grinding away. Insights are coming in and amazing amounts of work are getting done. And then you take an intentional rest. That's how I, that's how I see us not fighting our biology, but leveraging it would be now that you've educated yourself on how the brain and the body work best, you can, that's the whole becoming superhuman part. There's like, for me, the baby step is right. Like, don't fight it. Know that you need, you know, sleep every night. Know that you need to have good quality nutrition. Know, um, for example, that you can't be constantly connected all the time. This is the way that your brain and body work best so that you're not fighting it, so that you're not, it's not a detriment. But then to leverage it is learn the science or the neuroscience of creativity. You know, how does creative insight even happen in the brain? How can you like game pretty much your brain and your body to get you more for less? Yes, yes. Let's, 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 uh, let's, <clears throat> let's talk about some specifics here. So one of the things that I have found often is the case is one of the, I think one of the first helpful steps to making change or becoming more effective is not just to say, well, here's all the things you should be doing. It's also an important part of the conversation is here's all the things that you are currently doing that are really not helping you. They're not, they're not serving you. They're, they're undermining your effectiveness. They're un inhibiting your, a, a bit, your capacity to focus and stay, uh, uh, stay on, tr on task. So what are some of the, I don't know, maybe one of some of the, what are some of the bad habits or things that you tend to see in organizations that you work with and, and from the knowledge of your science, but what are some of the, maybe the, the big buckets, the big, um, the big pieces that people really need to understand might be very common, might be well accepted, but really, um, whether it's through science or through anecdotes, we know that it's just not the best way to do things. Sure, absolutely. I would, the number one, if I were to pick the one thing, it is distraction. It is the way in which people sit down to work or to any kind of engagement, even a meeting, and having phones laugh laptops, emails open, our brains are wired to constantly scan the environment for what are called salient stimuli, things that could potentially matter. It could be a threat. It could be information or knowledge. But we, um, I say this uh, in, in, in almost all of the, the courses that I teach, is that human beings are really not that competitive in the animal kingdom. If you really take a step back for a second, you look at humans, we're kind of puny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're, we're relatively hairless. Our teeth are not that sharp. We don't have, you know, our claws are our nails and they're even pretty flexible. We're not that competitive. We're not that big and strong compared to other animals in the animal kingdom. The reason why human beings have survived and thrived really in this world is because well, a couple of things. One, our brains are awesome. <laughs> I'm not biased, <laughs> I swear, but our brains are phenomenal. The second is because we collaborate so well. We're one of the most collaborative species on the face of the planet. We care about each other, but, and we, we, we're constantly scanning, going back to what makes our brains unique. We're constantly scanning the environment for humans, other humans, because we care about them. We're pack animals and we're super collaborative. So we're protecting each other because we all help each other protect the larger group. 
But we're also very much prone to anything visually, um, auditory stimuli in the environment that might cue us into something that could, again, potentially be a threat. You can't help that, that's evolution. It's gonna take a very, very long time for us to pretty much evolve past that. So knowing that, when you sit down and think of uh, many typical offices these days, they're open offices, right? Everyone can see everybody else. Everyone's walking around, there's conversations happening everywhere. So you can't ignore all of those things. It's a constant drain on your cognitive bandwidth. So you're sitting there and you're hoping to sit down and actually get some work done and focus. And how are you supposed to do that when there's so much, again, emotionally salient stimuli around? People that you know, walking around, talking, even just getting up to go to the restroom, you see people meeting and your brain is just, even if you can't tell in the background, it is just siphoning resources, siphoning resources from your ability to focus, from your ability to think clearly, your memory, even your creativity or your ability to come up with your tr troubleshoot really or to solve problems, that cognitive bandwidth is just getting siphoned environmentally, but also your digital hygiene matters as well. So do you have your phone out? You know, do you have your inbox open when you're sitting down to work? So I would say distraction is the one of the number one things. And it's easy, it, well, I shouldn't say it's easy. There are some simple things we can do to completely chip away at this, which would be, you know, put your phone completely away out of sight when you sit down to work. Um, get out of your inbox when you're sitting down to work, just maximize your screen, have one tab or only the information you need at that time for the task at hand. So monotask instead of trying to or attempting to multitask, which isn't even physiologically possible. You can only focus really on one thing at a time. So yeah, I would say distraction is, is the number one. Yeah, your, uh, your comment there about open offices is one of the more common questions I often get when I do my workshops on high performance and, and we talk, get in this conversation about topics, you, inevitably someone's going to put up their hand and say, what do, you, what do I think about open offices? And I, oh, yeah. I, I know that the intention, <laughs> I mean, there's from a, from a business productivity or business um, output, uh, probably not just productivity, but a business output point of view, there's no doubt that there are benefits for collaboration or at least the the kind of the water cooler conversations, the more you're, you know, that side of it. But there's absolutely no doubt that there is an undermining of people's capacity and ability to stay focused and not get distracted for sure. And people tend to roll their eyes as their company's rolling out the massive open office space. And I think really where what I've seen, I'd love to hear your perspective, but just in terms of, I'd love to actually talk about this from, uh, oh yeah, if we look at it from, a, from an organization point of view, like, a, like an off business office multiple people there um, what I tend to my perspective is that the smart offices are they do have the open office environment where people are accessible but they have to balance that with spaces or rooms or whatever it might be other spaces away where people can absolutely focus um, and I think that's a, there's a lagging trend there where, where companies are recognizing that, but you probably need, need a bit of both. And as an individual, you've really got to be clear and self-aware enough to know when is it that you should be getting away from the noise to get really focused and do some deeper thinking work or deep work as Calvin Port would say. Um, mm -hmm. and when are the times where it's totally, totally the right thing to do to be engaged with other people or just to be sitting in that. That, that pool of other people walking around. But, but what's your point of view in terms of that, um, in terms of that, uh, in terms of the future of office space? Oh boy. I, I, 
many times will try to soften my opinion on this topic, but mm -hmm. I will not do that to you, Chris. No <laughs> need. I know you're you're in the same you're in the same field. I think that open offices were probably one of the, if not the worst, one of the top business mistakes of this past century. I think that if anyone out there is looking for a great startup idea, uh, make a business where you help people and help companies undo open offices um, with a budget. <laughs> yes. Seriously, if it, we're going to end up putting up like cardboard blinders for ourselves because even that will be better than a lot of the, and it's aesthetically gorgeous, by the way. So you want to talk architecture? Yes, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, but or we're not talking about architecture. We're talking whatever, about maybe, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's, well, if you want my, my true opinion, I think that open offices, well, two, well, two things. Here's my negative opinion. I believe it's from a business standpoint, like the Foster Farms model for, for office space and office well, layouts. It's try to, foster, foster Farms being a, um, I, one of the, the largest sort of, uh, you know, chicken <laughs> companies right, okay. right. um, yeah, here in the States. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's, it's you know, just, it's like a, yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, how like chicken farming happens. You're just trying to shove as many bodies in a small space as possible. So you're trying to decrease the square footage per person. You're yes. trying to say how many bodies can we really fit into this office space without, without really thinking about how humans ought to work. Again, going back to there are bio fundamental biological laws and we don't seem to be taking them into account. When we do things like design offices, uh, which to me is just, it, it feels like we're building aquariums without thinking about the needs of the fish. I mean, we're not usually, you know, humans, we, we would do that, of course, because we're like, well, fish have needs. We have to think about their needs, how, how they are biologically, you know, best suited to live, but we, we're not doing that for ourselves yet, which is, I think, kind of interesting. But I do feel that, that we're, it's going to change in the future. So I have a you know, relatively negative viewpoint on open offices, but I also understand that I don't think neuroscientists were a part of that conversation when it was happening. And there is also, there are a lot of folks in operational psychology that had some, I think, aspirational hypotheses around open offices. There was a hope. There was a hope that if we take the walls down, that folks are going to, you take the walls down, everyone can see each other, everyone's near each other, then collaboration is going to increase and people will help each other more and will feel more connected, you know, to one another. And that will be a good thing. We'll see more innovation. But the problem is actually um, a phenomenal um, researcher out of Harvard uh, came out with, I think, one of actually the most well done study on open offices where he, him and his team actually followed a few different companies uh, that went from closed to open. They already had this kind of design plan in place. They're like, we're, you know, we're getting sexy new offices. Everyone's excited. <laughs> Here's our old school offices now, and we're all going open. We want to get WeWork style, you know, yep. uh, because apparently, you know, millennials love glass and, you know, we need like ping pong tables in here and <laughs> it needs to be open uh, and attractive. And so they actually followed this, you know, a couple of these companies and measured everything from their, not only their productivity, which they used performance metrics within the company to do this, you know, whatever they were using to measure their productivity uh, and their progress on different projects. But they also did something really interesting. They measured collaboration. They measured how often people were actually talking to each other, either personally or, you know, in a professional meeting. And they also measured the number of emails and digital messages that were getting sent back and forth. And do you want to know something fascinating, unexpected, 
mean, hey, I'm all for experimentation, but the experiment on open office has definitely failed. But they actually saw a significant increase in not only email and digital messages, but sadly, a significant decrease in in-person conversation and collaboration. So people actually were less connected when they took the walls down. They stopped talking to each other because everyone was, no one had any privacy anymore. So instead of, you know, going in, popping into someone's office or, you know, what we used to do back in the day more often is set up intentional time together. If I want to get, you know, Bob's thoughts on, you know, X, Y, and Z, but also just check in with him, I send him, I set up a meeting with him and we actually look at each other and it's not, you know, water cooler conversation. It's intentional. And and you can't really skimp on that. There's no replacement for that. You take that on the walls. Just because I say hi to Bob, like now more often, we're actually probably aggravating each other more often now as well. You know, um, every time I get up to get a cup of coffee, I see Sally. It's like, it's not the same thing. It's not an intentional meeting or an intentional time to connect. Mm. So that, that, yeah, those are both my, I guess, research-backed thoughts, but also sort of my personal experience myself. Yeah, no, even I, I, I appreciate the now. stance that you take. And, and, and speaking of distraction, um, and you, you mentioned that, you know, probably neuroscientists were not involved in the design of open offices. On the flip side, I know that neuroscientists were involved in the creating of a lot of our, the apps on our smartphones and specifically about how to, how to grab more attention, how to sustain more attention or, or um, yeah, really keep people engaged in the apps, which of course has now led to a lot of, you know, whether it's a serious addiction to apps, it's certainly an addiction to our devices. So talk to me about, um, you know, what are neuroscientists doing now to help undo what they tried to do in the first place? I'm sorry, you cut out just a little bit there. Where did I lose you? Uh, the what are neuroscientists doing about the addiction to the apps? Was it? Yeah. So, so if a, uh, what I was saying there is that the you know neuroscientists were involved in the in helping these app companies and helping Silicon Valley understand how to grab more attention from people, how to grab attention. But now we recognize that we've maybe gone too far, and that we're now become addicted to our uh, attention apps and our smartphones. So what, are, what, what, what can neuroscientists and neuroscience, how can neuroscientists help us to undo our addiction to these apps or undo the trap that we fall into about being so connected to our devices and being distracted by them? Well, that's, that's actually what we're studying uh, currently. And a lot of it is using the same fundamental uh, uh, laws and, and sort of that basic um, addiction model of the human brain to use that same knowledge that we use to make humans relatively addicted to these devices. We have to use the same thing to make them unaddicted. But, but I will say there, there is some interesting work being done now in the field. Step one, if anyone is interested in, in this sort of thing is you have to start making the device less stimulating. So I'm a huge fan of, you know, grayscale mode, turning the notifications off because every single time you have to make, it's, it's almost like we have to, to some extent, treat ourselves like very small children and try to think, imagine there's an amazing toy. If anyone has like young kids like that, that they're completely obsessed with. Imagine now that toy is completely gray and it stops making the sounds that it makes. 
and it doesn't have any sparkly lights. It's the same kind of research that went into designing out casinos, actually, and slot machines and making those very addictive for folks. It's the same research, same basic research that went into trying to make the smartphone very addictive. We made the screens bigger, more colors, more light, um, lots of sounds, vibration. It's like multi-sensory now. Yes. Uh, you sometimes can get a vibration or a sound, even if you're not even when you're receiving something, but when you send something, it's actually, it's the exact same research that went into slot machines. You got to have a sound go even when you're submitting, you know, uh, or pulling the handle down and you got to yeah. have sounds and lights come on uh, when, when stuff is coming back at you because humans love cause and effect. You see this from, you know, when, when uh, with babies even, they love cause and effect. They love hitting a button and seeing something happen because they know that they're in control. We love feeling like we're in control. And the phone is totally taking advantage of that. Even uh, think about email, even Outlook, Gmail, whatever it is, or Slack. You get a cool little sound when you send something off. You get a cool little sound when things come in. We need to start making these things less stimulating. So the easiest thing you can do is like turn the sound off, turn the, like as, even if it's not all the time, as many as many hours of the day as possible as yes. suits your life that you're comfortable with. I really and like that idea. Start to yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I really like that idea of making it less stimulating. And that's actually one little shortcut I learned very recently on my iPhone. I've got, uh, I think it's an iPhone 6 still I'm using with, with the button on it. But I've got mm -hmm. it done now where I, I triple, triple click that button and the entire screen goes grayscale. And I actually use that late at night and first thing in the morning. So it's not a sudden jarring when I wake up in the morning or, or as I'm trying to wind down and just maybe, you know, setting something, setting my alarm or checking my notes for tomorrow, tomorrow morning. And I find it, it does help. It, it actually does make it, uh, destimulates it. And I really appreciate your, your reference to, you know, treat, treat us like children and take away the, the sounds and the bells and the whistles and everything else. And that can start, at least start the, pro what I'm understanding is, I mean, at least start the process of untethering our lives and our untethering our addiction, being so connected to our devices as a first mm -hmm. step or as an important step in, uh, in reducing our pull to distraction. Yes, absolutely. And thankfully there's some dialogue now um, within at least the tech industry. So now we have really great apps and settings that you can play around with. Um, like focus mode, um, I believe on Android devices and, you know, the moment app where at least if you wanted to start to build awareness around how much am I really using all of yeah. these different apps and how many times do I pick up my phone? It can be, that can actually be kind of like step one and like a 12 step program to get yourself unaddicted to your phone is just building awareness and admitting that, Ooh, holy cow, this is kind of a problem. The, the really, I think what, um, for me in, in my work, uh, I've noticed the big shock factor and the, the catalyst for change, that motivation, really um, is looking at the number of times you unlock or pick up your phone. Not even like how much people are using different apps, but yes. the number of unlocks, I think really shocks people because they realize how many times they're really almost like for, for some false sense of security or in the moments of boredom or quiet, instead of just being with themselves or being present, they just unlock and they don't even do anything after that point. That's the scary. Usually that's like the point where when I've worked even with executives or different teams, you sit down with folks and you're, you know, talking to highly educated, very, very productive individuals. And they're just, they're looking at the number of unlocks, but also 
how much app time they're using. And they're noticing that there's so many instances of them, again, unlocking and doing nothing, like nothing's happening. So they realize that this is, oh my gosh, this is an addiction. It's, I'm not even doing it for a purpose. It's the purposelessness of it that scares them because it makes them feel out of control. Like they're not even thinking and acting. Well, and on that note, what, what, a, what a perspective would you bring to someone? If someone's listening to this and maybe they find themselves, you know, using their device, you know, a lot, but maybe it's not, maybe, it's, maybe they recognize that they're, they are a bit addicted or maybe they're just using it more than they'd like to. And again, you know, turn of the new year, time to refresh how they do things and they want to use their phone less, or maybe they're questioning, you know, maybe it's not so bad. What might be some of the signs or the signals uh, I love what you're saying about how many times a day or a week you unlock the phone, but what are some, whether it's, you know, uh, data on the phone that they can get, but other behavioral signals, what are some of the signals that someone could look out for and say, whoa, I'm doing that thing that the SAR said, that must mean I've, I'm using it way more than I need to. Are there a couple, a couple other examples you can think of some people should watch out for? There's actually one question that I typically ask folks that will tell me if there might be a problem. And I actually used to do this in the lab and still do. Um, and, and, but if I don't have access to the person in person, <laughs> then I can't physically do it. So I'll ask the question, if I were to take your phone away from you, how much time would need to pass before you start to get uncomfortable and a sense of anxiety kicks in? Hmm. What's the answer you typically get on that? Uh, completely it totally depends there are some folks that are so well adjusted usually uh much wiser and older folks <laughs> than you and i that will say like oh what you can just take my phone that's fine <laughs> yeah. you can take it for days i don't need it as long as you know like i have access to food water and shelter like yeah what would i need my phone for but you know that we're not all like that mm. um the scarier answers is i'll get you know not more than 15 minutes mm. yeah that is scary that is great. It, and, and I do this, in the, you know, I'll do this actually in person with folks. I'll ask, you know, if they, they would be so kind as to, or before a meeting, to put their phones in a basket, like to put it on, you know, airplane mode and to put it in a basket and it's like away from you. So you can't touch it. You can't hold on to it. You have no idea what's going on. And all of a sudden folks feel very out of the loop, disconnected. Anxiety starts to kick in. They're just, even if I've turned it off, they just want to hold it. And that to me is, you know, just think about just theoretically, hypothetically, you're in Hawaii on the beach. How long can you leave your, could you leave your phone in the hotel room and just leave? The answer is no, at least probe a little further, you know? Yeah. You know, one of the things that uh, personally uh, uh, my wife and I do at times, a little different now that we've got a young son, but uh, mm -hmm. if we're going to go out for dinner, we will potentially leave, leave, leave our phones at home. And it's a small act. But it, there's no doubt that in those um, in those subtle moments, it's not that we're it's, we are certainly not the kind of couple where we're sitting across the dining room table and all we're doing is staring at our screens. But there might be times where we need to pull it out to check something or to follow up on something or just you know check the time or whatever it might be. Uh, but it's in those small moments of of downtime or unsure what to do next or you know natural conversation comes up and says, "What was that thing that we did that where that place that we went and." Again, our natural kind of cultural now is just to pull up the phone and search what search our history or get on Google or ask Siri, whatever the case may be. Um, but those little moments and you're kind of retraining yourself, not just like coming off a drug, retraining yourself that you don't need the hit nearly as often as you think you do. 
especially when you're outside of perhaps of a work work situation, there are opportunities to just disengage and be more present with the people around you. Absolutely. I love that. I love that as a tradition. I really encourage um, folks to rely, like lean on, on your family, your significant other, your friends. You know, if you're having a guy's night out, just say, what happens if we all just leave our phones, you know, or let's all just even ceremoniously, like turn our phones off so that we can try to be present during this time. And again, yeah. Yeah. So, so there's another example. It's not just so you can fight your biology, right? Um, and your, if by your biology, it's by way of your biology that you got addicted to the phone in the first place. And now you're, we're having to fight it, right? We'll fight biology with biology. And that's kind of what I mean by leveraging it. That's what I mean by leveraging biology. We're pack animals and we are suckers for other human accountability. Use that to your advantage. If you have a hard time letting go of your phone, but you want to set better habits up, then force somebody else to do it with you and you'll definitely do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You make it an activity. You make it make lean on your pack because we're, we're that's we're, we're wired for that. So you, um, you start off or we start off this conversation and I kind of let it down the path of saying, so what are the things that we should not be doing? And you right away went to distraction and we kind of uh, dove deep into there. Let's turn the attention to what people could be doing, I won't say should be doing, but could be doing to be more effective and productive. And I understand that you uh, fairly recently did a, a fairly in-depth um, training program with over 200 high performers. And around, and you've done a lot of work in the studying on, of uh, cognitive enhancement, helping people increase their memory and their focus. Let's, let's dive into that. What did you learn from that study that you did? What are some of the highlights that, that someone who's listening to this might be very interested to know and, and start to apply in their life? Ooh, okay. There's, well, there's, there's so many things we could talk about, but I'll try to, I'll think of maybe the, the top three to, to summarize. Uh, number one, if you, if humans do want to get better at the act of focusing and they want more cognitive control, they want to be able to go deeper in their ability to pay attention and to focus. It's a muscle like any other. So the best way to get better at that and to have that come easier and to feel less mentally foggy and less distracted internally is to actually practice. You got to kind of like put in the time at the gym, so to speak, but doing that inside of the brain, what that looks like is actually doing what's called attention regulation training. You sit down or, you know, I say sit down, but that's really just, you know, you could stand, you could walk, you could lie down, but to focus your mind on one thing. And when, when you notice, because it will, it will, it will veer off. Your mind will wander. Notice it, become aware of that, grab your attention and, and then drag it back to that point of focus. And every single time you do that process of dragging your attention back, redirecting your attention back to focus, it's like a little, it's like a little bicep curl for the attention network in the brain. And it's gonna get stronger. And it will actually be frustrating. It's gonna be exhausting to do it in the beginning, especially. Just like you know, going, going to the gym, if you haven't been in a long time, it's not gonna, you're gonna be tired. You're gonna be sore. It's actually gonna deplete you to do this in the beginning. But over time, you will get stronger and you'll start to notice that it's so much easier to pay attention. You okay. have so much more control over your mind now. 
Yeah. Yeah. Great. So let me just ask about that. So I, I certainly get that um, in terms of focus training and focusing on one thing, and that can be, you know, the, of course, the, you know, the basic part of that is is focusing on your breath as an easy one that's always with you, whether that be a form of meditation or a form of mindfulness or just simply focus practice or as you called it, attention regulation training. Um, and you mentioned, you know, you do it sitting, standing, or walking. Could it be as simple as? Could it also be done as uh, walking down the street? And there's a stoplight ahead of me, or there's a sign on a, on a store ahead of me to really just be focusing on that as I walk and then notice my attention moves and then come back to that sign. Is it still as, a, I guess what I'm asking is, is it still as effective if you're doing it kind of as real life is happening? Or is it really most effective if you're sitting quietly in a room all by yourself? Chris, I love that. No, no it, it's totally effective. And so I actually, um, um, sometimes we'll colloquially call this uh, like coffee, coffee shop meditation, which is you're standing in line for, you know, a cup of coffee or something at your local coffee shop or a Starbucks or whatever. That's a great time to meditate. People think that you need to, you know, they have this mindset of like, you got to shave your head and move to a mountainside and become a monk or something to do this stuff. It's like, no, no, no. Completely in situ, practical, what, what I call integrated mindfulness. As in, it is a way of life. You should be doing it exactly as you said, like walking down the street. You're just, you're looking at a sign, like pick something to focus on. You could even be focusing on an idea. Um, I actually frequently sit down and, and pretty much meditate with my beverage of choice. Like if that's, you know, a cup of tea, you could stare at the steam, you know, um, as it's coming off of the hot water. You can focus on the smell, but be with the tea. There's nothing else going on but the tea. You'll notice anything that com comes up in your mind. Be like, no, 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 come redirecting back to the tea. And I think that's a much, in, in today's busy world, that's a, a, a much more, I would say, it's an easier way to integrate mindfulness. Yeah. And the whole point of it is to do it. It's exactly yeah. like fitness, right? It's kind of like, listen, if you don't have time to actually go to the gym, at least take the stairs, you know, like do little things here and there and it does make a difference. It absolutely yeah. makes a difference. I love the practicality of that. And again, if, if I, um, I'm sure there are a variety of ways and it changes, but if you let's just say you and I were sitting across the table and you were, you were teaching me about this, just like you, everything you just said, I love the practicality of in the Starbucks line or whatever it may be. So if you were to give me, uh, and again, I'm asking this on behalf of the listener, if you were to give me some very specific, um, uh, suggestions or guidance on my, a training program there is it like I should do that for is it five minutes a day is that helpful is it is it whenever I can it doesn't really matter or what's the parameter that I might want to wrap my head into if I'm going to try to do more of this this year to to improve my focus well I well my my uh Real life answer is do it as, you know, when you can, like that integrated style. Have it not be, like don't put meditation on a pedestal. And I think that's actually one of the biggest mistakes people make. And that's why it becomes so difficult to keep up with it as a habit mm -hmm. is that it becomes this big, fancy, important thing that, oh, well, I need to find a quiet room and I need to well, light a candle and do all this stuff. It's like, no, 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 just you could do it anytime, anywhere in the elevator. You could do it while you're washing your hands like leaving the restroom at work you could literally do this anywhere so i would say lower um, the barrier to entry really for it yeah. that's like the number one piece yeah. of advice and then once you do that then there is no prescription yeah it could be five minutes it could be two minutes 
It could be 60 seconds of presence in your body and awareness of your body and your mind, just 60 seconds in between one thing and the other. You've, you know, you're in between calls and you just close your eyes and bring yourself back to yourself for a minute or two and then jump on your next call. And if you integrate it in that way, there are no rules, you know, it's just, it's a way of life, but it's, it's, and when I say a way of life, that sounds really fluffy, but it's a way of mind. It's a way of brain. And that's kind of the point is you're training your brain to say, Hey, by the way, you're not in charge here. I am. I get to control what we're thinking. Yes. Okay, great, great. So, so, yeah. so that was uh, point number one you had from your research was, uh, you know, the act of improving the cognitive control and building that muscle. Well, what would be point number two is a kind of a key, key takeaway from the research that you did? A key take, another key takeaway would be that the hours of the day are not equal. So we have this, uh, this, this uh, concept um, that we call biorhythm optimization. And it's based on not only circadian rhythms um, in the body. This is a 24-hour sort of time scale of uh, you know when you are the most alert, uh, when are you when you're the most cognitively high performing, when you're the most uh, high energy physiologically even, um, and when you're you know you have your dips, which should happen, and when you wind down for the evening, etc., uh, and sleep. But also ultradian rhythms, which are shorter time scale um, physiological rhythms in the body based on stress hormones, glucocorticoids that deplete and then replenish throughout the day. And becoming aware of your own biorhythm, knowing that, and then leveraging it again so that you can start to schedule and design your day based on when you're at your best. So if you know that you're a morning person and between the hours of, let's say, 6, 7 a.m. and 11 a.m., that's when you can really crank out an immense amount of high-quality, focused, deep work, then as many times of the week as possible, protect that time and intentionally schedule in your calendar time to do that intense, deep work. And when you, if you know that you're not so great in the afternoon, you're practically, you know, it's mentally comatose and just staring at your screen, <laughs> you know, from the hours of like two to 4 PM every day, that's a great time to have meetings so that you can take advantage of an energy boost by collaborating with others and being forced to talk. And actually when you are really fatigued and exhausted, studies show that creativity is actually heightened because you don't have as many inhibitions. Yeah. So you could schedule brainstorm sessions for when you're mentally exhausted and you can schedule, you know, the important work for when you're the most mentally sharp. So the concept of we are biological entities, we're not machines. You know, we're not bots that the 24 hours in a day are not all equal, but everyone sort of treats their calendar as like, well, you know, yeah, I'm I'm free like whenever, I'm free all these different hours, but I would urge folks to be strategic about you know, times of day and when they schedule what, uh, because you can take you, that's how you can leverage your biology in so many ways. And it makes a massive difference. Studies show actually McKinsey did this longitudinal. Yeah. Um, I was going to mention that McKinsey did this massive longitudinal study on, uh, what makes uh, exceptional for performance in executives and managers. And what one of the massive findings in that study was that when executives are in what are called their sort of peak performance hours, the few hours of the day when they are cognitively and physiologically at their peak. 
that's when they're the most superhuman. If they get five times the amount done in those peak performance hours than any other hour of the day, five times the ROI is massive. If you can imagine carving out two of those hours for yourself where you actually crank out you know, all of your important work, it's like you've had a full work day. So just know when those hours are and then protect it as much as you can. And, um, and beyond the obvious, if someone knows, oh yeah, I'm, uh, well, you know, the simple example would be I'm a morning person, I'm more of a later day person. But some, so sometimes it might be very obvious. For someone who's listening to this and saying, hmm, that's a good question. Like when, I am, when am I at my best? Well, I'm, you know, some days I'm here, some days I'm there. Do you have any guidance or good questions that someone could, could reflect on and, and answer to help them identify when is their peak period for doing that deeper thinking work and how to recognize when their brain's kind of mush and it's time to, time to do some brainstorming? Sure. I, I, the easiest thing to do, um, nothing will ever replace data, right? And awareness. So I would log. I would take three days, three days out of your week and ask yourself when you wake up, and every hour or so um, after throughout the day or every two hours or so, whatever makes sense for you, ask yourself to rate quantitatively, one to 10, how mentally clear do I feel right now and how energized do I feel right now, one to 10. And you'll start to notice a pattern across the three days. You know, pending you haven't you know, pulled an all-nighter on one of the previous nights of yes, the three days. Yes. But if you just log for three days, you're going, I promise you, you're going to see a pattern and if you're and there, and it's many people are actually sort of these um, afternoon folks, meaning they're actually not morning uh, birds or night owls, and that's essentially the majority um, of the human population are somewhere in between. And I think that doesn't get enough discussion, you know, in the in popular science, uh, even in the media. Everyone thinks everyone falls into two camps. Um, and, and night owls are definitely the, the genetic minority for sure. There's not, I'm a night owl and there's not that many of us, <laughs> but I always tell, uh, I, I try to, I try to bolster the, the small percentage of the population that are night owls, um, in, in rooms that I'm in by, by, you know, telling them the sort of evolutionary story of how genetically night owls came about. And because again, going back to the fact that humans are not that competitive in the animal kingdom, when we sleep at night, and we, you know, lived in packs, we needed a subset of, of the village to watch over the rest of the people who were sleeping and watch out for danger, watch out for an attack. So there's always a subset of the population, and it's a minority of the people that would stay awake all night to protect the rest of the pack. So if you're, if you're out there listening and you're a night owl, and I know the world does not make it easy for us, we have to sort of bend to, you know, the, the larger genetic majority of the world, which are morning birds and, and you know, folks who are somewhere in the middle. Uh, just know that, that, you know, next time uh, someone's giving you a hard time about being a night owl, just be like, I, I helped protect the rest of the people <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> in ancient times. Those are my ancestors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's great. That's great. I, I really appreciate those questions about, you know, just or the, the practice of logging for over a couple of days. Rating one to ten, mental clarity and energy level. And I think that will give great great insights for sure. What's the what's the third the third key takeaway or insight that you gain from your research? The third would be more around I would say regulation and state change, and that is I think introducing folks to 
the concept of becoming aware of what are called uh, in the field brain states, that at any given moment in time, your brain is in a, like currently is in an electrical and electrochemical state, let's say state A, this moment. From everything you've done throughout the day, everything you've eaten, how well you've slept, what thoughts and feelings you're having, what, uh, what neural networks are activated right now in this moment, you listening to this right now, there is a current state to your brain. And there might be, you might be in a quote unquote optimal state, uh, meaning, you know, if you're sitting down to, let's say, work or take advantage of your brain in some way and to do something with it then there, there is such a thing as an optimal state and a non-optimal state. You know, anytime you might, let's say, you're feeling like distracted, foggy, like you're having that, oh, I don't want a feeling, that procrastination feeling, you're in a non-optimal state. But to embolden people to know that your brain state and quote unquote your consciousness and your, how you're feeling in the moment is super malleable. It is completely changeable. It's just, it's, a, it's some electrical circuits and some neurochemicals that can completely change and you can regulate your brain state. So teaching folks, you know, basic, uh, which is called brain state regulation um, techniques. And a lot of that can be done with the breath. You can come up with different triggers, like even um, physical triggers, like uh, training yourself to respond to, you know, squeezing your knee or, you know, pressing two of your fingers really hard together or using temperature even. Um, exposure to cold or exposure to heat as a state change trigger of some sort. So, so, um, so a mantra even that you could tell yourself. Yeah, those, those are great. So just like, just so I'm clear. So what you're so if I kind of um, play back what I'm hearing, just to make sure I'm getting it right, is that if I'm in mm -hmm. a bit of a mental funk, I don't really feel like doing that piece of work, or I'm feeling a little blasé about something, or or maybe the reverse, I'm feeling overwhelmed because of all the stuff I need to get done one of the best things I can do is to kind of shock my system in some way or adjust my system in some way to re-engage a different brain state. So that might be at this time of year where if you're living where it's cold, you might step outside and get a blast of cold air or splash some cold water on your face or lean back from your chair and, and do some breathing or go for a walk. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Right. It's just introduce new stimuli to the system, the system being the brain. And it, it's so simple. It could take as little as, you know, a couple seconds, but it makes such a massive difference. But I've noticed, you know, students of mine, you were talking about the study as well, teaching folks this, it takes, you know, we just, we just had the conversation. Now, you know, and now everyone knows, you know, but actually putting this into practice, massive performance improvements, because it allows you to have a little bit more control over those states in the moment when you do need to be high performing. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt that one of the big, uh, messages that the work that I do we land on people is the importance and it aligns very much to what you've been saying here and the, the, the smaller rhythm that we have during the day of our old trading rhythm the requirement in order to sustain the highest level of productivity of effectiveness of performance of engagement whatever language or word you might want to put in there it's absolutely critical that we take time to recharge ourselves or to take breaks or to step away from the work so we can fully engage even more going forward. And so I know, and I know you and I had a chat about this, we were certainly on the same page with that. One of the challenges that I often see people though, what they make is that they, they take what you might call fake breaks where, you know, I'm sitting at my computer, I'm doing emails, I'm doing some PowerPoints, I'm reading some reports, whatever it may be. Uh, I'm feeling a little sluggish. I'm going to take a break. 
And what I do is I spin away from my computer screen, I pick up my phone and I start scrolling Facebook or I start reading the sports news or whatever it might be. And so, so let's, let's shed some light a little bit on what people really need to understand about what is, what makes a true break and what are we breaking in order to come back recharged and even better than we were before. I love it. Yes. Uh, such a common thing these days. Yeah. People taking breaks with their phones or they say that they're, you know, taking a break and they're just still, they're just not doing quote unquote work, but they're sitting at their computer still and still on their laptops. So they start surfing the net or something like that. So the whole concept of a break from a more, I would say a neuro perspective when you're sitting down to work, when you're doing anything, you're engaging your mind in some way. You're engaging your brain. That means you're using up not only your self-regulatory strength, you're using up uh, pretty much your, 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 your bandwidth, even your neurochemical and hormonal bandwidth. You're using up glucocorticoids. You're using up cortisol, adrenaline, et cetera, to do the things that you're doing so that you can focus, stay alert, and actually process information and, and do things in the world. So when you've, you've done that for, let's say, an hour, two hours, and now it's time to, quote, take a break, really what you're doing at a physiological level or what you ought to be doing at a physiological level is to allow your body and your brain to replenish those hormones and those glucocorticoids again. The whole point is to actually recharge so that after the break, when you sit back down to work again, you're actually recharged you're replenished you can do you can work at the same level of quality and intensity as you did before you know the work sprint previously so if you don't take a break and you just keep kind of pushing through then of course almost linearly as the hours go by you're going to start to see performance decrements so you're going to see performance drop slowly as time goes on we all know that you know we at least know that theoretically, that if we don't take breaks, then we're going to get exhausted and then we pretty much burn out for the day. And there's really no coming back from that until you reset at night, sleep, wake up, and then it's a new day again. So instead, everyone knows to quote unquote, take a break. But if you're taking a break, you know, sort of almost with your devices or you're like reading or writing something or even scrolling through, you know, Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram, what you're still technically doing is you're processing information. So if you continue to expose yourself to stimuli and you expose yourself to, to data and info, you're still technically working your brain. You're not really taking a break. That's, you know, that's like the fake break, as you called it. And this fake break doesn't really allow your brain and your body to replenish and to recharge again. So people will take these, you know, quote unquote breaks. They're like, I spent 20 minutes taking a break. And it's like, well, what did you do? It's like, well, I, you know, read a bunch of posts on this thing and <laughs> read that I sent a couple messages. I sent some texts, you know, I got on the phone with my mom. Like, it's like a bunch of other stuff. And I'm like, that's not really a break now, is it? You're still doing stuff. It's, it's like using a muscle. The whole point is to stop using the muscle to let it kind of reboot so that you can go intense and use it again with the same amount of strength. So things that you can do instead would be actually like leave the devices behind, like stop processing info, go for a quick walk, you know, make a snack, um, you know, chat very, you know, casually with a colleague. If that gives you more energy, if you're maybe you're more extroverted, if you're introverted, then probably run and hide in a bathroom stall. 
sit with a plant maybe. Um, but yeah, you know, do something where the whole point is you're not, not using your noggin. Just yeah, no, I, I actually, I really value the, the, the distinction there of taking information in versus allowing the brain to replenish. And it makes me think of, you know, maybe it's a, uh, a glass of water filling up again after it's been emptied and allowing that brain to replenish with all of its neurochemicals and everything else that it needs to stay focused. And it's, uh, you know, when I had this conversation with groups and with leaders, there's no doubt, you know, I try to, I, I know I need to get ahead of the curve, ahead of the issue that people will raise. And the, the biggest resistance I see to breaks is, comes from a place that there's a lot of baggage, a lot of, a lot of baggage in the, certainly in the business environment about breaks. You know, breaks mm -hmm. are often seen as, well, either I'm weak, I don't need to take a break. I've never had need to take a break before. I'm not weak or maybe breaks are only for those that it's mandated to like maybe the union workers or whatever it may be is, you know, they're mandated to get a 15 minute break in the morning, 15 minute in the afternoon or, it, or the, 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 um, the, the, the challenge people have is they say, well, how can I afford to take a break when I've got all this work that needs to get done? And so I recognize that those, that's, the, that's a natural resistance that comes up. And, and my, my kind of, come back to that is always, well, here's the thing. The, the, the principle for performance that we humans and certainly our brains need time to recover, to recharge, to replenish, that principle has been around forever. The challenge is in our modern world, at the pace we're working at, at the devices that we have to work at, the information that's being thrown at us constantly is the, the natural occurrences in time where that means coming out of a meeting and going back to your desk, of not having to bring work home, of not being tethered to your more information and more work when you go to the bathroom, is that the natural occurrences where we could step away and allow ourselves to replenish, those have almost evaporated. Because now we're in back-to-back -back meetings, we're constantly you know, reading our emails. If not we're emails, then it's a Slack, then if it's not Slack, then it's text from friends, et cetera. So the natural occurrences have all gone, so we need to be even more intentional to put those occurrences back in place where we do allow ourselves to replenish. And the best way to get the replenishment is when we go deep in the replenishment, which really means switching off from any information. And I love what you said, it's going for a walk. It's walking to the canteen and buying a drink. It's having a social conversation. Mm -hmm. it's, it's closing your eyes and doing some deep breathing. It's doing some exercise, whatever that is, that truly allows your brain to shut off. So I think for anyone listening to this, I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on that, uh, Star, but <clears throat> for anyone listening to this, I think that's the first thing that you need to do is give yourself permission because my experience, and I'm sure it is with you, Sarah, that, that uh, the evidence is absolutely clear that when people, especially business corporate leaders, uh, business busy, stressed out people at work, especially those who have an intense workload, when they do take regular breaks throughout the day, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes throughout the day, they spread them out uh, and they do something that truly replenishes them, they absolutely will all report that they are more focused, they're more engaged. They were able to regulate their emotions better. They feel more satisfied and productive. Without a doubt, that is a result when you allow your brain to replenish. What are your thoughts? I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. I think it comes from a sense of fear and anxiety that we, we were too afraid to peel away from the work because there's just so much of it. And it, I believe it really does come from this belief, this innate belief that taking a break is a waste of time. Yeah. I think that's really the belief that we have that people need to address internally for themselves. Inside of yourself, you have to 
look that belief in the eye because it is there. If you have, a tr- if you have trouble taking breaks, that you really do believe that it's a waste of time. But I believe the, 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 the accurate science-backed belief version of that, that you can kind of uh, move towards, is that what matters is the intensity and quality of mind with which you can apply to your work and you will get more done. You will make better use of the hours if you're at 100, let's say 100% brain capacity. (laughs) And taking a break is just, so if you are feeling tired, mentally fatigued, stressed out in any way, overwhelmed, whatever it is, you really have to start thinking about, pretend there's like a little, you know, um, meter right next to your brain. And it's like, are you at 60% right now? Are you at 70%? And think of, and you have to multiply that percentage times the number of hours you're working and realize, like really truly realize that it matters. That if you take just a couple of minutes to get yourself to 100, that's gonna, you're gonna win in the end. Yes. Yeah, I think the biggest mind shift, I totally agree, biggest mind shift uh, that needs to happen for organizations, for leaders, and, and for individuals, even if, you know, you're not in the corporate environment and you're listening to this, if you're working for yourself or, or you're not working and you just want to be more productive and effective this year, it's the recognition that, especially in the context of what we're talking about here, is that in the, in the, in the old, in the past, in the, in the 20th century, the idea that were, breaks were a distraction from work or they were a detriment to productivity because that came from an assembly line mentality. But we now live in a, in a totally different century, totally different era. And the reality is that breaks don't take away from work. What breaks do is they allow you to recharge yourself so you can bring more of yourself to that next sprint or that next period that you're working. And if anyone is skeptical and anyone doubts if this is possible, all I can say, and I'm sure you would say the same thing, Sarah, is just experiment. Try it on for two weeks and, and, and you'll see for yourself what a simple yet profound impact it can have. I love that. Yes. I, it's really, I think, yeah, to add to that, the urge is for folks to be data-driven. I feel like that's such a, it's such an aspirational thing these days. We like know that, yes, of course, of course I would like to be data-driven. Well, we should apply that almost to self-improvement in so many ways, right? Is that people are skeptical or they think like, oh, that's not for me. It's like, well, why don't you try it? Try it on. Give it a couple of weeks. If it doesn't yes. work, then fine. Chuck it. Like throw it out. Then never mind. Well, as I never take say, a break again. As, yeah, <laughs> as I often say, try it on for two weeks because you can always go back to being stressed out, overwhelmed, and working crazy long hours if that's what you prefer to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I really appreciated uh, all the wisdom and certainly the practical advice that you shared, Sahar. And before I ask the final question. Uh, I'd love to have help help uh, people get in touch with you or people learn more about your work. Where can people learn more about what you do and, and get in touch with you? Oh, um, well, you can uh, always find me on um, our uh, research team's website. It's stoa.partners and, and uh, very responsive. And there's also a newsletter um, that we recently launched, the Becoming Superhuman newsletter, where we synthesize research, um, you know, different studies, summarize them. Uh, and and send out a lot of you know tips, techniques, uh, anecdotes, case 
studies, et cetera. Um, even worksheets with, you know, th you know sort of thought-provoking questions uh, um, to, to the list, to the kind of the community of folks that are really, you know, interested in how to be better, challenging themselves to strive for a more optimized way of thinking, of living, of, of working as well. I love that. I love that. I think the, the role that you are doing and your team is doing in terms of bringing real, real, uh, the rigor of science to helping your everyday people on the front lines of trying to be better this year, I think is really, uh, really valuable and really necessary in the, in the pace that we're working at this, uh, this time of life, this time of the world. So I applaud you for that. And I encourage anyone who's listening to really do uh, go check out the website. We'll, we'll make sure we include the links in our show notes as well. Um, so my final question for your time on the Ignition Show, Zara, is what do you hope to ignite in the world? Oh, oh, great question. Uh, it's very much on topic with everything we've been discussing. But um, my, if I could do one thing in this world, it is to introduce a new way of working to companies so that folks aren't burning out as much. We're, we're leaving things like workplace stress and burnout and this busy word where everyone feels busy all of the time in the past. And we introduce a more intentional way, a more productive way of focusing and working so that folks can actually go home and have a life. I want to help people get more work done in less time with less stress that's based in biology. So to introduce this new way of working to the world. Um, and the, the real hope is, I mean, of course I love productivity. That's kind of, that's, that's my, I live and breathe it on a daily basis. I think about it every day, <laughs> how to optimize, you know, the human being and how to get people to be more productive um, and higher performing. But the real secret goal behind that is that I want people to be really, really, really productive so that they can actually take time for themselves. It always breaks my heart when I hear, you know, people are taking work home, you know, almost every evening, they're jumping back on after their kids go to bed, they're working weekends. It's just not sustainable. We're supposed to be, I love my job. Um, and yes, of course, there are times when you're going to be working, you know, crazy hours, fine, but it can't happen all the time. And if it's more than, you know, 30% of the time, it's got to change. So that's, that's how I would like to ignite in the world. Or that's what I hope to ignite in the world. Uh, I, I, I applaud you for that. And there's no doubt that the world, the world needs anything at this stage. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not more time at the office and certainly more, not more un, unproductive time at the office. So. So thanks again, Sahar, for your time and for your wisdom. I'd uh, love to stay in touch and hear more of your research when it comes out. And uh, uh, I wish you all the best in your efforts to ignite that in the world. Oh, thank you so much, Chris. It was such a joy. Thank you so much. That was Sahar Youssef, cognitive neuroscientist at UC Berkeley and builder of superhumans. You can find all the links in our show notes. We want you to get the most of the time you've invested listening here. This show is only valuable if you apply what you learn, and most learning is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you learned or found interesting. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com connect. 
That's theignitionshow.com slash connect. And let us know what struck you. And what was it that you heard today that you really needed to hear today? You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group and participate in the conversation there. Just go to Facebook and search The Ignition Show, where you'd love to hear your comments and follow-up questions. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. That's a shorter follow-up episode where we, my wife and business partner, Sarah and I, talk about what we learned from this interview and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review in iTunes. It helps others find us and helps us get better. We read every single review and comment that comes through iTunes, Facebook, and our website, and respond to as many people as we can. And lastly, remember, whatever you dream of, whatever you hope for, and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you meant to have it, and you absolutely deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.